This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Mark Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma and today we're discussing another case, this time regarding initiation of GLP-1 receptor agonists. I'm joined again by Dr. Deborah Wexler, who's Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts in the USA, and she was a co-author of the ADA EASD Consensus Statement on the Management of Hyperglycemia in Type 2 Diabetes. So today we're looking at Ms. C, who's a 55-year-old woman who's just been referred to you with a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. She has an HbA1c of 7.5% or 58 millimoles per mole. She's overweight with a BMI of 29.3, but she's very resistant to the idea of taking medication and seems motivated to implement intensive lifestyle interventions to achieve a target of 7%. So in this case, how would you advise her? Well, this is the kind of patient I really do like to meet because lifestyle intervention is the foundation of all of diabetes management. And I think we have seen that there are many, many effective treatments for lifestyle intervention and behavior modification in type 2 diabetes. I think there tends to be a lot of therapeutic nihilism around lifestyle change. But in fact, a patient with new onset diabetes can often be quite motivated to change lifestyle. And so let me just lay out the kinds of things I counsel patients on and kind of what's available. So first of all, referral to a dietitian for medical nutrition therapy is often extremely helpful. Um, It's been demonstrated to have benefit. And the kinds of things that are important to focus on in medical nutrition therapy early in the course of type two diabetes are most importantly, portion control. Um, Certainly in the United States, I think portion size is not what it could be or should be based on home or restaurant portions. And just attending to portion control can often make a big difference. Elimination of all sugary beverages, including soda and juice, is another very good first step that can really change things for people. Obviously, limiting other sweets um, can be effective as well. But I think the challenge is a lot of times people will try to adopt a drastic diet that's not sustainable. And I think working with a dietitian to understand the individual diet of any given um, person and then try to find the tweaks in that person's diet that are going to be sustainable for that person over time is what really leads to lasting change. And I think most dietitians can and certified diabetes educators can do that well. We also have been really interested in lifestyle intervention. So programs like the diabetes prevention program and the look ahead lifestyle intervention have demonstrated that complex behavioral interventions that teach people the skills to make changes in diet and physical activity and help them manage slips, help them sustain those changes over time are highly effective. We published our own real health um, diabetes study in the Journal of General Internal Medicine in 2020 that showed very effective um, weight loss, 5% weight loss at one year in our lifestyle intervention arms, whether delivered in person or via telephone conference call compared to referral to medical nutrition therapy. And although although those programs are not always available in clinical care, they probably should be, because we've seen in the UK and in the US, whether delivered in primary care or via Weight Watchers or via remote um, app, any kind of sustained assistance with lifestyle change can be highly effective in motivated patients over time. It's not for everyone, but it can often work very well 
um, leading to diabetes remission and preventing the need for medication. So I would say this patient, if she comes and is motivated, um, might have a lot of success. And I would absolutely encourage her to give lifestyle intervention um, a, a try before jumping to medications. So moving on to six months down the line, Ms. C returns and says she's been exercising regularly, but is struggling to limit her food intake in order to lose weight. She has also experienced angina on exercising and tests reveal she has coronary artery disease. Her HbA1c is now 6.9% or 52 millimoles per mole, but she is worried about this new diagnosis and she seems discouraged that her BMI has only dropped to 28.9. So she agrees to initiate pharmacotherapy. So firstly, what do the relevant guidelines say about this type of case and what do they recommend as first line pharmacotherapy? Yes. So this is where the guidelines and I might part ways a little bit. So the guidelines would suggest if she truly has a known diagnosis of coronary artery disease, um, I think you would want to give her a medication that has atherosclerotic um, cardiovascular disease benefit in terms of risk reduction of future, um, future cardiac events. And clearly in someone with type 2 diabetes who's been struggling to lose weight, a GLP-1 receptor agonist would be highly effective in appetite suppression, glucose lowering, weight loss, and also probably more of an atherosclerotic CVD benefit than SGLT2 inhibitors, although we have not seen that evaluated in a head-to-head -head RCT. But an SGLT2 inhibitor um, could also be beneficial for her um, in this scenario as well. Now, the truth is that in real life, I actually still might start metformin first, which goes against the guidelines. And the reason for that is that metformin also is going to be effective for weight loss, also had a long-term benefit for cardiovascular disease in the UKPDS trial, and is much cheaper. So depending on this patient's circumstances, I still might start with metformin, but the guidelines would say, independent of A1C, in the presence of ASCVD, to start one of the newer glucose-lowering medications with cardiovascular benefit, which would be a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor. And considering the patient's obesity and coronary artery disease, what does the currently available evidence tell us about treatment options for her? Yeah, well, so the evidence would suggest a GLP-1 receptor agonist or, or SGLT2 inhibitor would be most effective independent of A1C. I think, you know, if we flip the case a little bit and we say this patient has a high A1C, you know, greater than nine, then clearly we would start with an SGL, start with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Um, if the patient had heart failure, we might lean more towards an SGLT2 inhibitor. So I think depending on sort of the flavor of complications, we might lean more towards one agent versus another. Um, but I think one of the problems is we lack a head-to-head -head trial of SGLT2 inhibitor versus GLP-1 receptor agonist overall, and certainly in the setting of a patient with an A1C that's at target. So it's very hard to say which one would be best based on the evidence. So in this case, would you personally offer a GLP-1 receptor agonist here? Yeah, I think I personally, honestly, depending on this patient's financial circumstances, still might start with metformin. Um, if you change the scenario a little bit and tell me her, a, you know, she's had kind of diabetes, she's on metformin, her A1C is elevated, then I would add a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 inhibitor. I think um, that is the more common scenario, honestly. Um, so, and I just would say a little bit about how to start an S a GLP-1 receptor agonist and an SGLT-2 inhibitor in such a patient. Um, you know, if the A1C were elevated and I were favoring a GLP-1 receptor agonist, obviously you would start at the lowest dose increment, make sure the patient can tolerate it, and then titrate um, after several weeks based on tolerability to the next therapeutic dose. 
Um, I do think it's important when starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist for weight loss, whether in the setting of cardiovascular disease or not, to remind people that the weight loss is going to be most effective in combination with diet and exercise. The medications will certainly promote appetite suppression and weight loss, but they're not magic. And if people continue to eat the way they have been eating, a um, couple of things will happen. One, there can be some bad GI side effects. So if people, many people eat, unfortunately, we don't just eat because we're hungry. If we just ate because we were hungry, um, we would probably not have the obesity problem that we do. But I think in general, we have lost, many people have lost their ability to, to stop eating when they're full, to sense satiety. Um, and we continue to eat for behavioral reasons. We eat because of the portion in front of us or because someone has cooked us food or because other people are eating. And I think it's important when people are taking a GLP-1 receptor agonist to really attend to the portion size and to that sense of satiety, to learn to attend to the sense of satiety that the GLP-1 receptor agonist is now augmenting in order to facilitate reduced portion size that will help the GI, that will help the medication be more tolerable. So if people do overeat on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, they're going to be more likely to have side effects. So watching portion size, eating um, smaller um, foods that sort of are less fatty will help people to tolerate the medicine and will help people to have weight loss on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. You just mentioned not overeating when starting a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but is there anything else that you would advise a patient who's nervous about side effects or indeed starting injections uh, in order to maximize the chances of their success? Well, certainly for certain, well, starting with the side effects, obviously for all people in a GLP-1 receptor agonist, I counsel them that the medication does work by suppressing appetite really centrally at the level of the brain and also at the level of the gut by slowing um, sort of GI motility. And so I let people know that often when they first start, there can be nausea and GI symptoms. Those tend to remit with time and consistent use of the medication. And so I counsel people to try and get through the first couple of you know, days to weeks and really see if it, they can tolerate the low dose. Um, and then once they're tolerating it, increase to the next dose. But you do have to let people know that that will happen. In terms of the injection, um, many people are leery of an injection, but often they will be motivated to try an injection when it can help with weight loss and diabetes management. I just started a patient on one of these medications last week who really did not want to be on an injection, but he did finally start it. And now he emailed me and said, wow, I've already lost six pounds. I'm really glad I'm on this medication. I feel fine, but it's really working. And so there can be a very, if you can sort of just get people over the hump to try it, um, particularly the weekly injection, um, then I think most people will, you know, if they are having the benefit, will be willing to stick with it. I will just say that one challenge of a weekly injection is that it can sometimes be hard to remember to take a weekly medication as opposed to a daily medication. So I will counsel people to have a strategy for that, you know, whether it be a calendar alert in their phone or on a paper calendar on the refrigerator, often people will need a reminder. And I do let people know that if they're supposed to take it every Sunday, but they forget they can take it Monday or Tuesday, that's fine. Um, but it can be, that, that can sometimes be a challenge for some people. So in terms of the dosing regimen, what would you normally start on? And also what specific treatment options would you normally choose between? In the United States, of the GLP-1 receptor agonists available to us, the ones that I would be most likely to use would be loraglutide, which is a daily subcutaneous injection, semaglutide, which can be taken as a weekly subcutaneous injection or as a tablet, 
or dulagotide, which is a weekly subcutaneous injection. We also have exenatide, which can be given twice daily or in a weekly form. But I am less likely to use those based on evidence from trials and side effects of those medications compared to the others. So I think, you know, with liraglutide, a daily injection, it was the medication studied in grade. It was the one that we had available to us for a very long time. And I, it's still a very good medication. So I started 0.6 milligrams daily and titrate up to 1.2 milligrams after a week and then 1.8 milligrams usually after the third week. So I, it's a very rapid titration or can be. Um, I tell patients not to increase the dose unless they are feeling well, if they have severe GI side effects, they should stick with their current dose. Um, and then the same goes for semaglutide starting at 0.25 milligrams weekly and increasing to 0.5 after, actually the labeling says after four weeks, but I will often increase a little earlier after two weeks if the patient is tolerating it. Um, and then again, after another four weeks can be increased to one milligram currently. There are higher doses that have been studied, but I don't, they're not yet approved in the United States. I'll come back to oral semaglutide in a minute, but just while we're on the subcutaneous formulations, um, dulaglutide starts at a dose of 0.75 milligrams weekly, then can go to 1.5, um, 3 milligrams, and then 4.5 milligrams. The oral semaglutide is very interesting because obviously for many people who don't want to take an injection, it re represents an excellent option to be able to have a GLP-1 receptor agonist in a tablet. Because it is a peptide, it has to be specially formulated for absorption. And therefore, it's not straightforward to take oral semaglutide. It has to be taken, um, I think, on an empty stomach with four ounces of water separately from other medications. And that can be a little bit of a process. Um, it started at a dose of three milligrams daily and then increased to seven and then 14 milligrams daily. Um, the 14 milligram dose is about equivalent in potency to the 0.5 semaglutide subcutaneous dose. So for people who are not doing well, um, on subcutaneous dose, if you kind of want more of a GLP-1 receptor effect, switching to oral is not necessarily going to get you where you need to be. But for people who are just starting and don't want to be on a subcutaneous injection, it's, it's a very good way to start. If we look at a scenario where three months later, Ms. C says she's struggling with nausea and says she often forgets to take a dose, how would you advise her? And would you consider changing the regimen in this case? Well, I think if a patient is struggling with nausea on a GLP-1 receptor agonist, it may not be ideal for that patient to be on a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So usually I'll give patients a medication holiday. Um, I, you can, or you can re reduce the dose and see if the patient can tolerate the lower dose. I think often in our enthusiasm, we will ramp up the dose a little too quickly. And then um, we get into a situation where the patient doesn't want to be on the medication, whereas the lower dose was working you know, and probably we should have just stuck there. So reducing to the lower dose and seeing if the patient can maintain that dose and then retitrating in the future is, is an option. And then finally, although this has really not been studied, it is the case that sometimes switching to a different um, medication within the class will be effective. So I sometimes do that if the patient is willing to try. It really is at this point a shared decision-making discussion with the patient to see what they're willing and able to do. So Ms. C continues with her regimen and she's able to lose a bit more weight. Uh, she comes back to see you two years later and her BMI is 25.7, but her HbA1c is now 7.8% or 62 millimoles per mole. So here, would you consider intensifying her treatment? Yes, well, this, this is sort of an interesting twist because 
usually in type two diabetes, when there is weight loss, there is improved glycemia. So it's unusual to have substantial weight loss and an increase in A1C unless there is development of intercurrent insulin deficiency or, you know, a change in diet or something that would be driving the A1C up. So I would really ask this patient, you know, is she drinking sugary beverages? Was there some event that caused her A1C to rise like a steroid injection? Um, but honestly, if she's ha had ongoing weight loss in response to the GLP-1 and a rise in A1C, I don't necessarily think I would, we, you could try to increase the GLP-1, but it would be surprising to me then that it would work. I might consider at that point adding insulin. I think a more common scenario is the patient comes back two years later, the GLP-1 receptor agonist effect has sort of worn off a little bit. There's been weight regain and an increase in A1C. That is what we see all the time. And in that case, I would be more likely to increase the dose of the GLP-1 receptor agonist or switch to a more potent GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, you mentioned possibly increasing the dose. So I want to bring up something that was presented at ADA this year, which was more data on higher doses of semaglutide, specifically from the Sustain Forte and the STEP trials. So in the case of the two milligram dose, this hasn't been approved yet by regulators, but theoretically, do you think these higher doses could offer clinical benefit here based on the recent data we've seen? Yes, yes. So I think that there are people, I think the GLP-1 receptor agonists are highly effective, but I think we've seen in many studies the A1C and weight will nadir, and then, um, and sometimes it takes a while for them to nadir, but they, there does tend to be weight regain and waning of effect over time. And in those patients or in patients who really have no satiety or no appetite suppression, no weight loss on the lower doses, we've seen increasing doses have marginally increasing benefits. So I, I absolutely do think that for patients who appear to be resistant to the dose of their current GLP-1 receptor agonist, the higher dose option will be useful. I certainly wouldn't rush. M many people will have responses to low dose, lower doses of GLP-1 receptor agonists. So I wouldn't automatically titrate someone up to the highest dose, but in a person who is previously responded or is not fully responded to the one milligram dose, I think the option to increase to the two milligram dose will be very useful. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for talking through this case with me. It was a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. This brings us to the end of today's episode. Join us again in two weeks for the next episode, which will be the last in the series and a discussion of potential future therapies currently in development. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review or rating, which helps other people find us. If you have any feedback or questions, we'd also love to hear from you. So you can contact us on social media, which you can find links to in the episode notes or by sending us an email at contact at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thanks for listening.